Okay, welcome to the 2011 Region 2 Convention. My name is Ella. I'm a compulsive overeater and the moderator for this session. Please help us preserve our cherished tradition of anonymity by refraining from taking pictures in this or any other meeting room. Let's have a moment of silence, please. Would everyone who cares to please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage is changed the things I can, and the wisdom is no truth. Okay, it has something here. Um, please announce at the beginning of each session, so I guess this is the beginning. Uh, we'd like you to take advantage of all the other things this convention has to offer to help Region 2 carry the message. If you liked what you heard and want to take it with you so you can have it all year round, please stop by the recording center tables outside the Houston room. They have CDs and MP3 downloads from all the sessions. If you saw Maria's stylish outfits during the play last night, they were all from the Rags to Riches Boutique. Stop by and see what gems you can find. <laughs> the shirt. The shirt. Um, next door to the boutique is our silent auction. Bid on Dodger tickets, a computer printer, airline tickets, and other wonderful prizes. Also, we have magnets and pins with every program saying known to men, don't miss it. Visit our hospitality suite to have a quiet place to talk, find out about local places to visit, and look at some wear from other intergroups. Finally, we have t-shirts for sale across from the registration desk. The title of this panel is Long Timers, 10 to 25 Years. Um, the format for this session is a reading from our literature, three speakers, and questions from the Ask It basket. As the speakers are sharing, we will pass around a basket with paper and pencils for you to write any questions you may have. Please specify if you are directing your question to a specific speaker. Please be sure to keep the basket moving, even if you have already passed it. As speakers continue to share, Members may think of questions that they did not have when the basket first passed by. Uh, may we have a volunteer to read a selection from page 337 in Voices of Recovery? Hi, I'm Cynthia, compulsive overeater, sugar addict. Mm -hmm. I can hold on to fear that serves the purpose of keeping compulsion alive, or I can turn my life one moment at a time over to my higher power. Fear and anxiety has hunted my entire life. They have also been a constant challenge in my recovery from compulsive overeating. Forming a relationship with a higher power, whom I call God, has resulted in several years of abstinence and an ability, ability to walk through fearful situations. In order to grow emotionally and spiritually, I need to take risks. That brings up fear. The combination of abstinence and a reliance on God has given me courage. I will never be without fear, but with God's help, I have been able to face my fears abstinently and accomplish things I never thought possible. Our first speaker is Julie from San Leandro, who will speak for 20 minutes. 
do I have? Who's timing? 20 minutes. Thanks. Hi, I'm Julie, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Um, <clears throat> well, um, I brought pictures. Would anybody be willing to come up and grab them from me so I don't have to throw them at the audience? Thank you. Thanks. Okay. So um, the, the information I got via the Internet as to what I was supposed to talk about is completely different than what was just read on the Thought for Today. And uh, I have notes. <laughs> so here we go. Um, I think it's most helpful to hear a little bit about what someone used to be like and what happened and then whatever I can address now. So I think I'm going to do that. Um, first of all, just the basic statistics, um, this is a great outfit. And because um, it has food hanging off it, I have little bananas hanging off my shirt. I think that's wonderful. But um, I've been in Overeaters Anonymous. I was trying to figure it out the other day because someone asked me for particulars about myself. And I said, I've been here about 30 years, okay? I've been abstaining July 1st, 26 years, okay? And um, and as we all know, that applause is for every one of us and for this program because without you and without that, I would not be standing up here, and that is for sure. Um, anyway, 26 years of abstinence. Um, my top weight was, I think, about 200 because I quit weighing after a certain point but continued to binge my brains out. And my bottom weight was 98 pounds in this program, and I've been everything in between. And, uh, you know, like I, some people here have heard my story, and frankly, I'm not going to go and out and make a new one, so this is it. Um, I, uh, I, was, uh, I was a fat baby. I mean, I'm not just meaning like, oh, isn't she cute? I mean, obese baby. Uh, I like to drink a lot of juice, and the pediatrician bawled my mom out saying, she cut her, you know, and she, well, she just likes to eat, and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. So, um, obese baby, chubby kid, fat kid, uh, you know, this being weighed in elementary school, nurse always telling me, honey, don't you think you should lose some weight? And real early on, I mean, at the age of five was my first diet, I learned that. Being fat was not okay. Now, mind you, in my family, everybody was fat. I mean, we even gave the dog ice cream at night. Okay, we all had a weight problem. The dog developed diabetes. I mean, it wasn't pretty. But, I mean, we were happy because, you know, ice cream, you know. So um, I, I just come from a family of eaters and drinkers, all right? The eaters usually married the drinkers, but there we were. <laughs> And I learned a long time ago, you know, the only thing that went bad in our refrigerator was iceberg lettuce. I mean, period. Okay? And I learned all kinds of skills for life that I had to learn different ones in OA. One of the skills I learned was if you want to hide something in refrigerator, put it with a vegetable in front of it. Nobody will look there. Um, I, I, you know, and... When fast food came out, I mean, we just went from fast food place to fast food place, and that's what we ate each night for dinner. And uh, I can remember uh, vacations by where we ate. Uh, holidays are defined by what we ate. Um, and always, you know, there was at the same time where there was a big emphasis on food, there was also a huge emphasis on how I looked or how we looked. How do you look? Do I look okay? Does this make me look fat? That's the question to ask. Any man or woman guaranteed 
to bring a fear of utter terror to their eyes. Okay. Honey, does this make my ass look big? Uh, I think I hear my mother calling me. (laughs) I mean, it's bad. All right. And there was no right answer, of course. Um, Anyway, I've just been overweight all my life. And I've tried all kinds of different diets. And I used to drink Fresca before they had NutraSweet. And I used to uh, eat, you know, skinless chicken breasts that you broiled in the oven to the point where they were as hard as this podium, you know. But I'd drink them with a regular diet Coke. (laughs) I mean, no, a regular Coke, you know. It was weird diets. Anyway, all kinds of diets. Five-time flunk out of several commercial weight loss programs. Uh, I went to... um, Another program that they electroshock your arm, right, to convince you you don't like certain foods. Well, you know, <laughs> there wasn't enough electricity, and uh, it's, you know, they're like, <laughs> they said, give us a list of things you want to not eat. And they go, well, we can't do this. This is everything. <laughs> I'm going, you know, that's the way it goes. Uh, I came into Overeaters Anonymous when I was in college. I had tried a lot of programs, including uh, going to Africa and getting dysentery, and none of them worked for long. Every time I got on a diet, I would lose weight and then gain it all back and change. You know, I always went higher and higher and higher, and I felt worse and worse and worse. And I couldn't understand why the periods of, oh, my God, summer's coming, quick, let's go on a diet, were getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And my periods of uncontrolled eating were getting longer and longer and longer. And I didn't understand why I would go to the beach in Southern California and be ashamed because I couldn't look like some little cute girl in a bikini, right? And uh, and I would go to the snack shack and get, you know, the food they serve at snack shacks. And then I would get a shake on the way home at Foster's Freeze. And then you know, just... An hour ago, I'm feeling bad because I'm fat, and I've made a commitment, you know, a holy covenant with myself that I will be thin next summer, but right now I'm going to foster freeze, okay? So that was my life, and then um, I came into Overeaters Anonymous uh, because I was desperate, and uh, my sister told me about it. And so I came here, and I was, like I said, I was just coming back from dysentery. So I had some weight off, and I knew it was only a matter of time before it came all back on. And so I went to Overeaters Anonymous, and um, what happened to me was this. I didn't learn certain things in OA, like if you're going to a party and people are drinking, and they tell you they're going to, dinner will be at 5, they're lying. They're lying. Okay, when people are drinking, they don't care about food. Now, I always did, drinking or not. Okay, I was, you know, I could be a fat drunk. I was just fine there. No, it's 8.30. Now, if you've had four ounces of lean chicken, a cup of carrots, and six ounces of grapes at noon, and dinner ain't till 8.30, um, it was bad. So I made the hostess, and I literally mean that, made the hostess set out dinner, and I ate one abstinent dinner, and then I ate a second abstinent dinner, and then I ate a third abstinent dinner. And then we went to some dance, and we came back, and I had a container. I guess it was a potluck. So I went in this perfectly strange person's house, went in their refrigerator while their dog is growling at me, and just got some food for the road. (laughs) You know, but I didn't have any sugar, so I thought it was okay. And I went the next day, and I called someone away. I go, did I break my abstinence? I didn't eat sugar. And they go, yeah, you did. 
And I said, thank you very much. That's all I wanted to know. And I went down to the supermarket and I bought my first binge. I binged for three more months. I put all my weight back on and then some. And the second time I came to Overeaters Anonymous, uh, it was on a Monday in January, and I came because I had tried the last thing I could think of to do, which was fast. I'd heard people do that. And um, I lasted five days, and then I ate again. And um, I came to Overeaters Anonymous not because I was sad, but because I was desperate. Because the food wasn't doing for me what it was supposed to do, which was shut my mind off. Make it go away. Make me feel better. And it wasn't doing it anymore. Um, let me know when I have like 10 or 5 or something. Thanks. Okay. So anyway, I get to, I have got 7 minutes. So I got to Overeaters Anonymous and um, I hated it. If you're new to the convention, by the way, and you're feeling awkward or weird or who are these people? Don't they have lives? Do they do this often? Um, welcome. I didn't like it here and I didn't like you and I thought people like me were from another planet. Nobody abstains for 26 years. Nobody. Nobody. And I, all I can tell you is, how did that happen? Uh, it happened because I was desperate. I had gotten really thin in a way the first time. Uh, I came back. No, this is time number two. Got really thin. Got too thin. I thought if I got thin enough, I'd feel like people who worked the steps felt. I didn't think that consciously, but that was unconsciously what I was doing. I got to 98 pounds in this program. And then I went to an OA retreat, and I didn't have a God, and I didn't have a sponsor, and I didn't have a food scale, so I had no, I hadn't worked the steps. I had just gotten thin. And I began compulsively overeating at an OA retreat. Makes the other retreatants a little nervous. <laughs> and then I went from 98 to 200 in less than three months. Because this is a progressive disease, and you told me that. And you said, don't take the first compulsive bite, and you told me that. And you said, it gets worse, never better. And you told me that. But I had to live it. And I was a wonderful example of what the disease can do. And I kept coming back because the only time I stopped eating was when I was in an OA meeting. And what happened for two and a half years, I tried to get abstinent and I could not. And I got a sponsor. And I began working the steps to the best of my ability. But I kept eating. And then one day having consumed yet another binge with a loaf of bread and a pound of butter. Um, one more time, I'm in pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I went to an AA meeting because I was too ashamed to face you. I had enough 30-day chips to circle the room. And I, everybody thought I'd gotten drunk. I said, no, I just ate. And somebody talked to me, and they said something that I was, by the grace of God, able to hear. They helped me realize that I've been trying to kill the wrong person all my life. They looked at me with love and acceptance. And they said, how about if you just try to stop hurting yourself? And I always thought I ate because I wanted to be happy. To me, numb equaled happy. And they gave me the permission. And I had a real credibility issue with God because for two and a half years, I've been praying fervently to stop eating and hadn't been able to. And I just gave it one more try. And one more try has turned into 26 years. So if you're having trouble, give it one more try. Keep giving it one more try. This works. Okay. So in the five minutes I have left, three, four, four minutes I have left, I'm going to share with you something. 
part, part of this was about, you know, how do I maintain what I have now? I do what my sponsor told me to do, do 26 years ago. I go to meetings. I work the steps with a sponsor. I read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I am of service, and I sponsor others. That's what I do. And I have a plan of eating, and I follow it. My plan of eating has changed over time, and I actually come back to 26 years later, I'm eating about what I ate when I came in. <laughs> and uh, because I have aged. <laughs> and my body, I used to hear women say, well, I just can't eat what I used to anymore. And I would think, clears God, please no. Don't let that happen to me. Please, I don't want to eat what they're eating. That looks like shit, God. Please no. I am eating what they're eating. And I'm weighing what they weighed. Okay? So here's the deal. Real fast. Okay, great. Um, here's the deal. I was looking up the 10th step because I thought that's one of the valuable steps that uh, help us uh, once we lose the weight and get here and stay here. And it talks about um, looking at people who hurt us as sick people takes a long time to change our outlook. I just looked at them as targets of resentment and revenge. But here's what happened to me at work. I'm just going to say this and then I'll wrap up. I get hungry, angry, lonely, tired, and I used to think all four of them would put me in trouble. I now know today just one will put me in trouble. And I was angry and tired. And I was at a staff meeting, not a good combination. And I said some things to a gentleman that were not appropriate or professional. And I went to him later and I said, I want, first I tried to make an excuse, of course, and then I realized, bullshit. So I made an amends, which he said okay and did not accept. And we used to be good friends. And for weeks and weeks and weeks, he basically treated me as if I had stabbed his puppy in the throat with a knife in front of him. And I came to, upon reflection and writing, know that I had known this enough about this guy's story that I had hit an old button not deliberately, but I'd hit it. And he was reacting from old, old pain. And I had to let him react. And I had to just be courteous. And I had to pray to not close my heart. Because once I say I'm sorry, you're supposed to say, okay. I didn't say I was sorry. I said, this won't ever happen again. And I wrote him an immense letter. I apologized. And I said, I can promise you this. This will never happen again. That didn't matter. He's not in a program. He doesn't have to forgive me ever. But it hurt. And I, I'm hurt at his hurt of my hurt. So anyway, I remember saying, God, you know what? If, if somebody ever hurt, never say this to God, by the way. If somebody ever hurts me, I'm going to forgive them. Because I know how much it hurts to not be forgiven. God gave me the opportunity to experience that. I was at a museum where a colleague of ours had asked for all our work. I'm an artist. She's showing slides of our work. This is at a museum. I'm thinking, yay. And because I'm her longtime colleague and one of the major uh, people working at our organization, I'm thinking, of course, she'll show my slides. And she didn't. And it really, really, really hurt bad 
to not even be mentioned in an organization where I have been there for over 15 years and I've been there longer than her, longer than the people whose work she showed, and it really hurt. And so I left there and I had to do what I said I was going to do. I had to write about it, I had to give it away, and then I had to pray for her. I got to say, why did you not show my work? I just want to know. But I didn't get to say, you know, WTF, you know, um, what's going on here? And by the way, and bring up everything she's ever done that was wrong. Long story short is, the miracle is this. I don't know about what you do with the resentment, but I play with it all day long in my mind. All day long. All day long. I don't only review what they did wrong to me and how wrong they are as a human being, but I also find anything else they may have done in the past that was a slight to me, and I bring that up. And that's how I spend my time thinking about how wrong you are. And I said, higher power, I don't want to live like this. I don't want to be thinking about this person 24-7. I don't want to have to be writing 10 steps on this person from now, for five years from now. I want to be a person who forgives. I'm a person who's like flypaper with resentments. Once they stick on me, they stay there. And I have not had to carry this resentment. I was given the grace to hug her, to show her it was okay, that I'm not mad, and to let it go. That has taken 26 years of two to three meetings a week to do that and praying every day. And that's what I do. I continue to pray and meditate. I continue to go to meetings, work with others, do what the book says, man. I'll say this and shut up. There's two things. One is, any growth I've had in this program has not come in big sweeping changes. It has been in small increments. And what I heard one time that I really like is that the smallest changes can bring the biggest results. Someone told me, you can eat an elephant if you do it a teaspoon at a time. And I can get rid of excess food a teaspoon at a time. And the other thing they said was, that I really like, as they said, it takes a long time to change, and that's me. Even small changes will result in big changes. And this is the line I love. The bitterness of slavery has to come before the hard work of freedom. I know the bitterness of slavery to food, and I know the hard work of freedom it's taken to be here and stay here, okay? But the thing I also know is I didn't do it. This was done to me and for me by the power greater than myself, God, and this program. And that is what has done it for me. I know that this is a day at a time. It is not lived in 26-hour increments. It's lived just for today. Just for today is the only day that counts. Just for today is, thank you, is, is it. So I'm going to end there and say um, thank you very much for having me.
Hi. Um, this isn't in the script, but I do see a few extra chairs that are open. Um, maybe people could raise their hands if there's a chair near and somebody who's sitting on the floor would like to sit in a chair. Um, well, whatever. Um, okay. Our second speaker is Tom, Tony P. from L.A. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Tony. I'm a compulsive overeater. Okay, so I'm going to do the same format that we kind of made up here and uh, give you a little bit about what it was like, what happened, and how I'm maintaining it. So, first of all, um, you know, I, uh, I have a set story, and I try to change it up a bit, so I'll try to do that because a lot of people um, have heard it before. But um, really what I want to try to do is tell you how, first of all, how... Um, I'm powerless over food and my life was unmanageable. Um, the re how I was powerless over food is um, I come from being over 200 pounds. Um, I have 25 years of abstinence as of last Saturday. So, um, and the only reason I'm standing here today is because um, this 25 years has been a process of trying to find a higher power and trying to do things in a different way. So when I, when I, um, I'll tell you how I got here. Um, and actually it was really kind of a fluke, but um, my eating career, um, I, I'm not one of those people that can point to any one thing of why they are a compulsive overeater. Um, I came into the world um, uh, premature. I was underweight, and it took me a long time to finally, you know, get to being a compulsive overeater, um, but at, it happened probably at about age seven, um, and a couple things happened. It was kind of like a perfect storm. Um, my mom... Uh, uh, divorced my father, she remarried, and she got um, sober. And uh, when she got sober, she married a man who I did not like, um, and they became, you know, recovered and in, in the other program and started speaking all over the place. And uh, so I kind of grew up, um, and she, got, she became very well-known very quickly in that program, and so I kind of grew up in a, in a recovery household, which is completely different than a lot of people. Um, and so it was a wonderful, loving household, really. Um, the problem was is that, um, you know, I didn't know how to deal with um, being kind of like an only child. I had an older sister, but, um, you know, we weren't really close. She was 11 years older than I was. She kind of left. Uh, my mom had just gotten sober. Um, and so they kind of left, and they were gone from the house a lot. And so what I did was I ate. I ate for when they weren't there. And see, I, I'm a liar, cheat, cheat, and a thief. And so what I would do is I would wait for them to leave for the night to go to their meetings. You know, meetings at that point were, they started later. They started like 8.30 at night. That was a long time between dinner and 8.30 to, you know. But So I'd wait for them to leave, and I'd wait this obligatory 28 minutes because, you know, then they'd have been gone from the house, and I knew they weren't coming back because they forgot something, like the car broke down, whatever. That was the longest 28 minutes as I was planning my binge of the night, you know, and that I was going to run down to the store and, you know, get 25 boxes of Pop-Tarts and tell the checkout clerk that I was babysitting, you know, 17 children. They all like the same flavor. So that's what I, you know, that was the thing. And then in a half an hour when I'd run out of that, you know, those boxes, I'd have to go back and tell the same story or some embellishment thereof. So um, that's what I did. Now, I'm one of those compulsive eaters that it talks about in the big book that I like, um, the reason I eat is because I like the effects produced by food. Um, I like that rush of eating what I eat and feeling just, that just, you know, the anxiety leaves. Now, it doesn't leave for very long because I need to take another bite because the anxiety comes back or, you know, whatever. You talked about um, angry, lonely, tired, 
all of that. So that's what happened. Um, you know, so what I did is um, I got, I, at about seven is I found two foods, which I found um, were absolutely mesmerizing to me. And one was chocolate and one was uh, peanut butter. Now, I'm one of those compulsory eaters. I'm sorry for those of you who are offended because I talk about food. I'm going to talk about food. But I'm a compulsory overeater, and I have to remember what, where I came from, and I have to remember what I ate because as soon as I start glossing over that it was, you know, a peanutty substance or it was, you know, whatever it was, then, you know, we're uh, game over. I'll start eating carob, and we're off to the races. So, um, you know, so I found chocolate and peanut butter, and I put it on every single thing I could, you know, find. Aspirins, it didn't matter. I was just I was going to put on everything. It just didn't matter. So, and I started to gain weight at an enormous rate, you know, for uh, someone at, at probably seven years old. Um, now, I, as I said, I have this, I had this stepfather thing to deal with, you know. Now, he loved my mother more than anything in the world, but unfortunately, I was part of the package deal. Now, this man also wanted me to be the jock son that he didn't have. Now, you can look at me and tell that that didn't happen. <laughs> Um, he always wanted me to fix cars with him and go and throw the football and do all those kind of things. And, you know, he would force me to go to the park and he would say, okay, run down to the 50-yard line. I'm going to throw the football at you. Well, I'm sorry, you know, but those balls, that when you throw them through the air, they come, they come at like 500 miles an hour and they can hit you and hurt you. So I would just wait for this ball to get very close and then I would just kind of step out of the way and let it fall onto the ground. And they would say, you're supposed to catch the ball. I'm like, ah, you know. And I did this because I knew that the next day was, you know, would usually be a Sunday. And then I could go with my mom to the real sport, which was shopping. So, you know, so, you know, there you can tell that um, I, was, I, I was struggling with a lot of things at that age. Um, I was struggling with my sexuality. I didn't understand what that was going to be. I didn't know what that meant. I just knew that I was different from other little boys. Um, in, at, at school, um, I didn't have a lot of friends. I was kind of lonely, um, except for you know when bullies found me. Then I wasn't really lonely anymore. Um, you know, so that, so a lot of those things um, contributed, and I, I, I would spend a lot of time alone and eating, and that's what I did. Now, um, what happened was is that I, um, I'm very ingenious when it comes to food. Now, I love chocolate. That is my drug of choice. I mean, that I, I just love, and so. Um, I'm going to tell the brownie mix story. So um, I loved uh, Nestle Quick, which was this powdery stuff that you put in milk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. See, I have a fan right there. Okay. So, and we can talk. Yeah. So, um, and I would eat this stuff out of the can. You know, well, the problem was is that it, it goes really quickly. So I was thinking about this, and I'm like, you know, I need something that's like that. And brownie mix, that's the ticket. And it was cheap. And see, I'm not, you know, I don't want to be making the eggs and all the water. It's just, you got to eat out of the box with a spoon, man. You know, if you're going to do it, you got to do it and be hardcore about this. So, and you could chew it. That was the best thing. Except the only problem was is that you, you know, one false move and you breathe wrong and it's brown smoke everywhere. So, you know, I can't tell you how many times that happened. But I was, you know, I learned how to do this. So that was what, that is what my disease took me to. I was, you know, I was to that, you know, that is, is why um, my life was unmanageable. Now, um, I was 200 pounds. I um, got through junior high and, and high school. I had two outfits that I wore. Um, I wore out the insides of my pants um, because, you know, I, I, my legs ran rubbed together. Um, and so, you know, that's what the disease took me to. Now, um, you know, my parents really loved me, so my, my mother and my stepfather, and they wanted me to um, really succeed. So they decided that they would 
do what, um, they, now they didn't call it abstinence, but they called it, you know, they were going to have healthy meals. And now for those of you who could conjure up this visual image, um, it was uh, steak with all the fat trimmed off, low, no fat cottage cheese, and cherry tomatoes on a plate. Ugh. Bland, horrid stuff. But, you know, you eat it. And then, of course, my stepfather would lecture me from across the table and, you know, tell me about why it's bad to be fat and all these things and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I could just kind of escape. Um, and so they, and also, I mean, they would go and I would go and do my binging and whatever. But, you know, so they really tried. Now, the problem was is that they never thought like an addict. If they had thought like an addict, they would have realized what I was doing. They would have realized that I was stealing money from my piggy bank or their whatever I was, wherever I was finding it. They would have realized what I was doing, and they never did. So um, how I got here was um, fast forward to uh, um, college. I was 200 pounds, 5'4 and 3'8. very important to 3'8 if you're 5'4. So, um, <laughs> uh, and I was 200 pounds. Now, that's really large for someone at, at 5'4. Um, and I was wearing a size 38 or 40, um, you know, corduroy pants. I remember corduroy and wore out all the insides. That's always a lovely look. Um, <laughs> And so I was, in a, I was in a class, and I realized, you know, my whole life I wanted people to laugh um, because if they laughed, then that means that they didn't see that I was fat. That's what I thought. Um, I covered up everything. I made sure I wore T-shirts under everything. I wore long sleeves. I wore jackets, even in the, you know, the, mo the hottest of the summer months. And I would tell people that, they're like, aren't you hot? And I'd say, oh, no, I can regulate my body temperature. <laughs> You know, and if you tell yourself that a long enough time, you, you know, you just kind of, I don't know, you just try to do that. But, so, I mean, that, I just didn't want anyone to see me. If, I, if they saw me, then they knew I was fat, and I'd have to admit I was fat, and it was awful. So, um, I got in this dance class, and, and through being horribly embarrassed um, by my peers and realizing that I was 200 pounds, um, I, I realized I didn't want to live like that. And so I didn't go to Overeaters Anonymous. Oh, no. Um, because I had been to Overeaters Anonymous when I was about 12 or 11 or something like that. And my mom, you know, in the last-ditch effort to, to do this, she said, let me, you know, have one of my sponsees take you to an OA meeting. I'm like, oh, whatever. Um, so we went to an OA meeting. Now, you know, 11, 12 years old, we don't know what to do with them in Overeaters Anonymous. We don't know how to handle them. There's a child in the room. We can't say what we want to say. We can't share. You know, they, they don't know... And I, I felt the same way. You know, they just kind of looked at me and, you know, everything. So um, I didn't stay. I think it was one meeting and I, I didn't stay. And so um, after I was in this, this uh, class and I was 200 pounds, I decided that day that I wasn't going to live like that. And so I just stopped eating chocolate and Pepsi cold turkey. Now, at that point, I have to tell you, I was eating two three-quarter-pound three bags of M&Ms a day, a box of dried brine mix, and all the Pepsi I could get my hands on. So that was a lot of chocolate and, and sugar. I stopped at cold turkey. Three years later, I had lost 75 pounds. Don't remember those three years. A lot of people that I've seen since then, they remember them very well, thank you, because <laughs> I was not a happy camper. Um, and so uh, at the end of that three years, someone came to me and said, you know, I, I called someone to speak to his roommate. And... Uh, he said, before I put him on the phone, I just have to tell you, I've seen you a long time, and I know your mom, and, and uh, so um, uh, I'm going to an Overeaters Anonymous meeting tonight. And I was like, oh. I was like, well, that's great. He says, well, why don't you come with me? I said, no, I'm best, really busy. I'm busy for the rest of my life and yours. Thank you very much. <laughs> and so, uh, um, but I did go, and, and you know, I, I stayed that first meeting, and I heard what someone's version of absence was, and I took it. Now, um, I ate sugar, recreational sugar or dessert sugar, let's call it dessert sugar, 
for the first 14 years of my absence because that's what I didn't hear that you couldn't do it. Now, the one story I will tell you is that it's very strange. It's a very strange experience to go to fellowship with compulsive overeaters when you're eating dessert sugar and watch them continue to talk while the whatever the substance is is coming and they're still talking and it's circling around, circling around, and then it lands in front of you. I mean, the air sucks out of the room. I mean, they just, they, you know, it was just crazy. So, but I ate that until um, it became a problem. And I, and I did what you should never do, which is you tell your, you call your sponsor and you say those words, you know, I think this might be a little bit of a problem. <laughs> because then what your sponsor usually says is, do you think you can not do it for today? <laughs> and you know that that is the end. <laughs> that is the end of whatever that is that you're eating because it will never probably ever come back. And uh, so that's what happened. Um, the, in the last few minutes I have, um, let me just tell you um, how I maintain this is um, I, I'm honest on a daily basis to the best of my ability. I work the tools. I work the steps. I have a lot of fun in this program. I have some friends in this program that we spend most of the time, even during meetings, laughing. I mean, we just laugh. We just think everything is, is really about laughing and having a good time in this program. I don't take this. I take my recovery seriously, but I don't take um, a lot of the stuff very seriously. I do a lot of service in this program. Um, I've been on the board, oh gosh, four times and done four years, that's 16 years. I'm about to finish my 16th year, not in a row. I have done rotation of service, just so you all know. But um, I have done that many years of service because I know that service keeps me here. It keeps me going to a meeting. At the meeting level, it keeps me going there every single week. I mean, I have a commitment uh, at this meeting on Saturday morning where I, I open up and, and, uh, and do the, uh, set up the room. And I know that I could not go and it would take care of itself, but I need to go there because if I do that every, every week, then my behind gets to that meeting and I'm in that, in that, at that bench. So um, it's important. Um, I've been to a lot in this, in this program. Um, I've been to the death of all three of my parents in this program, um, two of them in the same weekend. Um, and the only thing that I knew how to do when that happened was come to a meeting and, and be around people like you to help me through that. Because eating wasn't going to bring them back. Eating wasn't going to, you know, solve that. Now, the problem is, is, you know, when you're getting dressed in the morning and the iron breaks, that's what I want to eat over. <laughs> you know, that's when you hit me where I live, you know, because then, you know, then we have something to talk about. But the big things I've never, you know, thank God, wanted to eat over. Um, I've been able to find a higher power in this program that I, I can love. You know, growing up, I didn't have one. Um, I thought that my higher power was going to punish me because of my sexuality. Um, and so I thought, you know, there wasn't a God that I could believe in or that wanted me. Um, and so, but I've, I've been able to find a different one, and that was really important to me. Um, and I've also been able to pursue a dream, which is to go um, and pursue my education. And um, I'm very blessed because, you know, I wanted to leave um, L.A. two years ago, I think it was, um, and I, I applied to 80 jobs in, in Wisconsin. And people are, Wisconsin? Why would you leave California for Wisconsin? Well, I have family back there. But anyway, and I think all my sponsees and friends, I think they called Wisconsin and told them, no, don't. He doesn't, don't make, don't let him go. So, um, you know, but all 80 jobs, nothing. I heard nothing. So that was a very clear message, you know, not, not now. Maybe later, but not now. So I'm here and I'm in a, a graduate program and I'll finish my, um, hopefully, I, I'm working on it. Um, I'll finish my doctoral degree in next May. So because of this program, I'm able to pursue those dreams and goals because I couldn't do it 
if I was still eating. I guarantee you I wouldn't even be alive today because if you're eating that much, you know, brownie mix, um, you know, you're not going to make it. So um, in closing, I just want to tell you it's been a miraculous 25 years. Um, I, I, you know, I hope to keep on this path and do everything that I'm doing on a daily basis and continue. Thank you. Um, may I remind people to keep the ask it basket moving, even if it's moved to you already? Just keep it circulating. Okay, our third speaker is Amy from from Palo Alto. Hi, I'm Amy, a compulsive reader. And um, and thank you, Julie and Tony, um, because you told my story. And um, and one one thing about the story uh, that's so important to me is, first of all, I did forget about, I told you I forgot about the Nestle's and the powder, because I did that too. Um, I am, I call myself a garden variety compulsive overeater. There was nothing gourmet about how I ate compulsively. It was boxes and bags. It was cereals, peanut butter, jar, spoon in jar, and throw that chocolate on it. I had that too. Um, and um, I can tell you, um, I'm also, um, I'm like Julie. I wanted to shut off my mind. Um, and I thought it would mean that that was, actually, I didn't see happiness in that. I, I, I saw happiness in the fact that my mind would be shut off. But I was never a very happy compulsive overeater. And um, I um, have been a compulsive overeater from my earliest memories. Um, and uh, put myself, um, this is a story I like to tell. So for those of you who know me, you probably have heard this. Um, I put myself on my first diet when I was seven. And I took a big poster board and I took a multicolor, you know, little girl, lots of magic markers of all different colors. And I wrote out a food plan for myself. And I said, this is what I'm having for breakfast. This is what, and I gave myself choices. You know, here are like three or four items I could have. Here are the three or four items I can have for lunch. And here are the three or four items I can have for dinner. And um, my sponsor, my food sponsor who's in this room, will tell you <laughs> I say, here's what I'm having for breakfast, and here's what I'm having for lunch, and here's what I'm having for dinner. And I actually, she hasn't seen it so much in writing, but I wrote it in this just the same exact, same exact way. Um, and the other thing I want to say about that is I have a ten-and-a-half-year-old son and an almost eight-year-old son, so I have a seven-year-old son right now. And um, to think that they would feel as bad about themselves at this, at these ages as I felt about myself at age seven, is completely heartbreaking. So um, one thing about my, my recovery, my recovery, um, my recovery, I'll, I'll say it, I, it is a lot of fun, right? It's the hardest work I've ever done, but it is, it is a lot of fun. The disease is pure pain for me. And what I heard from the two, um, my two uh, co-speakers up here is we all talk about the past because it helps us keep the memory green. So in order for, for me to keep what I have today, I have to remember I do not want what I had before. There is nothing that would be worth it for me. But the truth is I'm a compulsive overeater and I'd give it all up for a potato chip, FYI. I'd give it the whole thing up. And I've said that because it's true. It really is true. And, um, and I suspect the way I am, I'm a crisis player. So I can handle 
you know, following a food plan, making the extra calls when I'm in a crisis situation, but it's in the regular day-to-day living. That's the stuff that trips me up. And so there's still a lot, a lot of things. You know, when I first came into program, um, which uh, I'll just give you some stats, um, I, came, I started in OA in New York. Um, I dropped by in November of 1985, thought you were also very crazy. And then I crawled back in uh, February of 1986, and February of this year was 25 years for me, uh, absent. And, and, and I can tell you um, that when I, you know, when I was told, like, here's how to understand this disease, here's how to explain it to others, it's, you know, you're like the diabetic. You know, I get, if I, if I take my insulin and I, and I eat properly and I exercise and I do all the things you need to do to have a reprieve as a diabetic, um, then, you know, I get, you get to go to sleep and, and not, you know, and not have had any diabetic emergencies. And, but when I wake up in the morning, I'm still the diabetic. And that's what it is to be the compulsive overeater. I know today I just get a reprieve. And in order to be graced with that reprieve, there are certain things I need to do on a daily basis. So um, one thing that I do is I follow a food plan. And I take that from Just for Today pamphlet. Just for Today, I will have a plan. I may not follow it exactly, but it will save me from two pests, hurry and indecision. Um, my food cannot be a smorgasbord to me. <laughs> it can't be a buffet in my head. It's got to be really clear. And what that does for me is it means that I make sure that in my house I have the food I need that I've just committed to, and if not, that I need to go out shopping and get the things I need. It's really basic. The other thing I heard today um, was, um, was the things I do today and that work are the same things that worked 25 and a half years ago. I was told, use the tools. Do the steps, service, sponsorship, keep it simple. All those things, whenever a time I go all like bonkers on myself, I pick up the two pieces of literature I learned about this program with, which was the AA Big Book and the AA 12 and 12, because there was no OA 12 and 12 at that time. And I said, keep it simple. The directions on how to live are here. And I even do an exercise sometimes when I'm feeling really like I don't know what the answer is. You know, I pick up the big book and I close my eyes and I flip pages and I open it up because I figure whatever page that is, even if it's like, you know, I will always say after that, that's exactly what I needed to hear. And it probably has nothing to do with the pain or the issue or the confusion that I was dealing with at that moment. Um, uh, another thing I do, and, and I want to concentrate on this because uh, when I share and I tell my story, I end up getting so involved in my story that I forget to tell you about the recovery and, and, and what it takes um, for me on a daily basis to, to, to be graced with um, abstinence one day at a time. So um, the other thing that I do is, I mean, the, the basic tenets say, you know, sponsor somebody and have a sponsor. So um, I'm currently sponsoring uh, four women who are in different places in, in their recovery. Um, and um, I'm working the traditions now with a, a step sponsor, and I have a, a food sponsor who I call every day. Because I find left to my own devices, 
boy, what do my own devices look like? <laughs> it looked like those, the group of people who are over there at this convention trying to figure out how to lose weight and change their bodies through a program that they probably paid a lot to go and attend. I don't need to be there anymore. None of that worked for me. So um, when I came into program, I was actually 19 years old, and, um, and I had already tried. Um, I don't know if anyone's tried the hypnotism thing. You know, it's almost like the electric shock, like, a, it's in, you know, envision this thing, and if you think about this lion, you'll never want to eat this, this, and this again. You know, again, ne never enough lions or enough, enough suggestions to stop me from eating. So uh, for today, um, what I do, I talked, about, I talked about my food plan. I talk about turning my food over to a sponsor. Um, one thing I never thought I'd be able to do is um, when you get the 10th step and, and, and in our 10th step we're asked to take uh, a daily inventory and, and when we're wrong, promptly admit it. And um, I thought I could never possibly write every single day. And, um, and I took the teaspoon approach and said, okay, well, maybe just for today you can write something. And um, I can't even tell you now how many years it's been since I've been doing a written 10 step, but it is somewhere in the 20-year range where every day I do writing, um, generally before I go to sleep, uh, where I take the opportunity to write out my food plan and do a, a gratitude list. And um, I'm not going to say I perfectly look at my day because sometimes I don't feel like it, but um, I look at... Uh, at what happened in the day and look to see are there any unsettling feelings that I, that I need to take care of. And one of the comments I've got from um, a superior of mine at work, um, she said, um, she says two things to me. One, she goes, I know when I want to always hear what the real truth is, I'll come to you because you won't try to bullshit me about anything. And um, the second thing is, she says, it's really amazing how well you know yourself. And um, one nice thing about doing step work time and again is I no longer walk around in the fear that you will find me out. I was always afraid that the jig was going to be up. And then, I don't know, you'd, you'd see who I really was. And still a part of the way um, recovery works for me is I always say that I feel like my biggest, um, the hardest thing I deal with is my humanity. I am the most embarrassed about my humanity, and it is because of my humanity that I get to be here with you and get more love, more support, more spiritual sustenance than I have ever gotten in my life. And it's, it's such amazing. I've always found this program to be an incredible paradox. So um, as I was growing up in program, and for those of you who are thinking she came in when she was 19, she was so lucky, was so early, and, and then in New York they'd say, if a little pisha like you can do it, we can do it too. Oh, I never had my 20s. Just to tell you, the 20s are hard, whether you are abstinent and sober or not. They were hard. And, um, and I really grew up in this program. In this program, I was um, uh, coming in, I was very isolated, I was alone, um, nothing was, you know, I was very hard on myself. 
Um, the kind of eating that I did was very, um, I was never a, you know, people had binge buddies. I was not, I never had binge buddies that had to be done in the secrecy and the privacy of my own hell. And, um, and as I got older in this program, I learned how to uh, date in a Reader's Anonymous. Um, I learned how to, and there will be a group of ladies here who will laugh, I learned how to get married. They, they were here. They, they knew me when I was uh, single and, uh, and, and got married in this program. Um, and, um, and then to uh, have children. There's one thing I had thought was, you know, I am never going to have kids. I won't, I, I, this disease was so compelling. I will not have kids unless I, um, unless I stop doing what I'm doing because I don't want to pass it on. So what I learned in another program is even though I'm stopped, I may have passed it on. But, um, and, and I get to love myself through that too. So um, I don't know, what keeps me coming back? What keeps this program alive and working for me? So one is I do stay to the, to, uh, the back to basics. Um, I use the tools, not perfectly, and that, that's something I don't, I'm not trying to say as an excuse, because it could sound as an excuse, but just to be real. If you think I'm up here telling you I do this, this, and this, and I do it every single day, and I do it all perfectly, and if you think that that's the only way to keep coming back and to be the same size for 20 years and all that stuff, I just want to tell you that's just not true. My experience is there are times in my life when I relied uh, really heavily on meetings. There are times in my life when I re relied really heavily on tools. There are times when I relied really heavily on the steps, when I relied heavily on an individual who, after I had some surgery, came and brought meetings to my house and rallied troops to help me because I was depressed and couldn't, I did not know how to help myself. Those are all the different ways. And I'll say the common string, or if when I talk about it and when you stand up here and you have some, some hindsight, is the common thread really is my higher power. Um, and um, and I'm, not, I'm not somebody who's had a tight relationship with my higher power. <laughs> I have always had to um, work on it. And, um, and um, I'm somebody who I have to have bloody knees and scraped my hands and bruises on my face before I'll make a change. And um, in my relationship with my higher power, what I realized, because at first I thought if it, if it wasn't the kind of relationship where I burned incense, where there's, and anyone who does that, that's terrific, actually. I, I wish I could be you. Burn the incense and sat in a lotus position and had um, like a little altar in your house. I don't know. I have two boys and there's no safe spot in my house like that. I've never, um, I've never been able to have that kind of connection, but what I found was I found my higher power in using tools because in using the tools and the literature I read, I heard my higher power's words. Uh, in sponsoring, that's the greatest connection to higher power that I can have outside of the ones I try to make just between me and my higher power. Um, going to meetings using the telephone, using the uh, internet meetings, um, um, following a food plan, all of that to me is a connection to my higher power. Sometimes when I don't know what to pray, I just can read one of the steps in the OA 12 steps and I find the words to be so just on another level, in a way that I could not possibly express myself and I use that as a prayer that can lead into a meditation. Um, another really important part of my recovery 
where I find my higher power is in doing service because you only get to look at me, I get to look at all of you. And it's a really, really nice view. It's a really nice view. I get to see over 100 people all in here for the same reason, to recover from compulsive overeating, to cry, to laugh, and to offer, you know, practical suggestions on how we get through a day one day at a time. Um, one of the other, one of the other things um, in the big book, it talks about insisting upon enjoying ourselves, and there's a lot of the word of joy all over the place. And to me, it's I loved, I love to laugh, and the laughter is so healing to me. It takes like all that seriousness of being thinking I'm a fat and like a whale, and it just it just lifts it all away and it carries it just it just carries it out of my body and out of the room I'm in and I am so grateful for this program I mean I think about like I'm here this weekend with my husband who's off doing whatever he's doing this is the first time I mean like he's come to a convention with me like what's that about um he's going to the dance with me tonight like are you kidding me like who would have thunk I would have a kind of life where I get to plug into, like, my spiritual family, my spiritual light, and my husband comes along for the ride. It is such a blessing. And it's all because of you. I mean, I will, you know, the people who know me personally will tell you how they helped me get through being in this relationship for this person. Then they told me how I got through when I came in and I was gaining weight because I was pregnant. And I was like, I'm gaining weight. Yes, that's because you're pregnant. How I got through that, how my food plan changed about 25 times during pregnancies, both of them, how they were completely different. To me, I mean, you're my family. You're what I grew up with. And that's the connection I feel. And I really hope that in some way I gave you a sense of, um, you know, I don't know, what, what's the magic? You know, because I always wanted to know, what is the magic? How does somebody have 25 years plus, one day at a time, of not binging, of following a food plan? And, um, and I truly believe if you ask me, I would, I'll always tell you, I have no idea. It is a combination of grace. It is a combination of willingness or praying for the willingness to be willing. It is um, a belief that acting as if can work just fine until I, I believe it myself. And that uh, for the first time that I know that if I am in the, these rooms and if I'm not eating compulsively today, that whatever happens today, just maybe if I don't eat compulsively today, tomorrow will be a really different day. And it's not even just tomorrow. But if I don't eat compulsively right now, in about a half an hour from now, I could have a really different day. Starting over can happen at any moment. It doesn't have to wait till January 1st. It doesn't have to wait till Monday. It doesn't have to wait till the trip to Hawaii. It happens right now at any moment. And I always like to say, right now, everybody in this room is abstinent. And that's, that's what it takes. So I am so very grateful to be abstinent and to be here today. Thank you. Um, would any, wherever the ask, ask it basket is, would someone please bring it up here? Uh, 
Okay, um, we have about 15 minutes for questions. So, um, I don't know. Um, well, let's just start this. How did you get from being an isolator to feeling connected to others in the program? Uh, they helped me do that by saying, um, get out of yourself. The way to this program of recovery is get out of yourself. Help put away the chairs. Do the literature table. They didn't say it like that. That's the way I heard it. But seriously, when I'm sitting there and I'm feeling bad, I look around the room for maybe somebody newer than me who looks like I feel, and I go up to them and I say hi. I found that the way to be a part of it's different when you go to a meeting as opposed to giving service at the meeting. When I give service at a meeting, it becomes my meeting. And it's a great way to get out of self, coming to these conventions, all that stuff. You know, talking to somebody newer than you, it gets me out of self and I start to feel like I belong. Bottom line is, is I'm a member when I say I'm a member according to the traditions. So it's not a matter of that I don't belong is I don't feel like I belong. And so I take the mem actions that say I'm a member. And it helps me be a member and I start to feel it. I don't feel it and then act it. I act it and then feel it. Well, this is a long question, but um, at the end it says, would you please speak on emotional sobriety? So I think that's the takeaway from this question. Um, so for me, um, when I came in, it was important for me to um, stop compulsively overeating first. Um, and um, when I stopped, when I stopped feeding the disease with the food, then um, it really raged its ugly head uh, through the emotions. And um, I think the wonderful thing about the steps for me is that I can take those. So, so one thing was I was always I was afraid to be angry or afraid to cry because I thought it would go on forever. So number one, that wasn't true. So, um, so the first burst of the stuff that happened for me when I first got abstinent, um, I was sharing with someone earlier. I'd be like up payphones in New York City and calling my sponsor. <laughs> She, I don't know if she could hear a single word I was saying. I was crying so much. Or I would be really, really angry. And um, for me, what happened just over time, which is that level, which was so pent up, it did dissipate. It dissipated naturally without me doing anything but following a food plan, going to meetings, using the tools, and working the steps. Really, nothing at all. I hadn't enough to do anything at all. And then, and then what happened really was by the time I reached um, step four, I really got to take a look um, at all of um, my emotions and in doing and not actually doing my step four but I found really in doing my step five and then step nine um, I felt there was a true really a true amount of um, uh, of emotional sobriety and, and what I mean by emotional sobriety is um, uh, not uh, you know binging on food versus binging on emotions um, you know binging on self-pity uh, uh, yelling at people for no reason at all, um, you know, and now as a parent when things come up and I see that maybe my emotional sobriety isn't, isn't in, intact and I, you know, will say something, you know, I'll use a loud voice with my children, 
who are not afraid to say, Mommy, you did not have to use such a loud voice. Um, <laughs> it helps to have somebody say those kinds of things to you. Um, but uh, even so, it's, then I can take that step, that step back and make, make the necessary amends. And I do say a lot, you're right. Um, but for me, the initial emotional stuff, it, it, it dissipated over time. I focused on what my sponsors told me to focus on, which is really going to meetings, talking about it, and doing a lot of writing. And then, um, and then really, I think what attracts people, I mean, it's a program of attraction. It's not enough to be in a normal body, right? It's, it's the rest. It's practicing the principles in all of our affairs. And I wanted, um, you know, I wanted uh, emotional sobriety and spiritual enlightenment. And, um, and, and those require, um, you know, that's, that's why after, you know, 25 years, you know, I keep coming back because that's, that's a daily, that's a, that's a daily process for me. Um, okay. You seem to be kind of connected. Um, what are your food plans today, and have they changed? And um, how did you become aware of your binge foods and make your plan of abstinence? Okay. Um, well, I, I when I first came in, we didn't have um, food plans. We had just abstinence, and that's what I heard. Which, and, and my, as I said, my abstinence changed. But um, uh, today I have um, absence, which is the things that I don't eat. They are chocolate, Pepsi, peanut butter. Um, I think that's what's the list now. And then I have my food plans, which are the things that I avoid. Now, probably I will say that there are things on my food plan that we could just skate right over to the absence list. But, you know, to be quite honest, they're just on the food plan and they'll be there and then I'll probably move them over. But um, how I got to my, um, I think this is what the question was, is, um, I eat like a zoo animal. Um, you know, I eat kind of the same thing for breakfast, lunch, and dinner pretty much every single day of my life because I can't let my food be too creative because as soon as it's creative, then things start having sauce on them and, wow, let's put this on, let's add some of this, and let's, you know, and then there are like, you know, 15 food groups on a plate. And so, you know, I just, I, I have to eat that way, and that's how um, I keep my, my food plan and my absence pretty um, honed in. I don't control it, but... Um, in a sense, that's what keeps me on the straight and narrow, and I call in my food, uh, or email in my food, I should say, and I do it before the day gets too long rather than after, because I feel like after the day is over, if I, don't, if I do it at the end of the day, then I could have had all the day long to kind of add something and move things around and everything, so it keeps me more honest to do it um, before the day um, gets going. So I think, hopefully, that's it. Um, this is a question for Julie. In the last 26 years, have you had any slips in your food plan? Um, how flexible is your food plan? Would you describe it? Oh. Okay, I'll be quick. Um, my food plan currently is three meals a day. If there's something in between, it's because I have to accommodate about an eight-hour stretch, and I'll take a fruit from one meal and use it in between. Uh, I weigh and measure my food. I eat four ounces of protein, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I eat 10 ounces of vegetables at lunch and dinner. I eat a fruit per meal. And um, because of physical things, 
uh, allergies, migraines, everything. Uh, I have I abstain from pretty much a lot of carbohydrates in the form of rice, potatoes, bread, and I abstain from dairy because of the migraines. Um, if I don't abstain from dairy, then I want to eat cheese, and cheese has a real high salt content, and it gives me a headache. So that's basically what I eat. And slips, yeah, you betcha, okay? How flexible is it? Well, um, like one time I had a strawberry in between meals because this guy was growing them in his backyard. He says, here, take this. And I, being a people pleaser, I said, okay. And then I had to talk to my sponsor about it. I know that sounds stupid, but it was a big deal to me because I don't eat between meals. Um, sometimes uh, if I eat out, to be honest with you, when I eat out, I, I definitely eat rather than four ounces, probably five ounces of protein because <clears throat> four ounces of protein is the size of a deck of cards. I just find that heinous. I don't think it's right. I think God is wrong. And I think that there, he has a lot to answer for. So when I'm out to eat and I have a six-ounce filet mignon sitting there, I might cut off part of it and I might not. <laughs> And that's just the way it goes. I don't know which one of these. Um, well, how do you keep your attitude of gratitude? So I mentioned that when I write on a daily basis, um, I write a little gratitude list. So there are some key things I'm always grateful for. Um, and it's, you know, I have uh, abstinence, sobriety. I um, list my husband whether I like him that day or not. Um, I, I list my children whether they loved me the way I wanted to be loved that day or not. Um, and, um, um, and, and it does make me, it's, it's an exercise. It, it really, it really, uh, it really works. Um, I'm also part of this, uh, this, this little online group locally and, um, people are just so full of gratitude. It makes me sick. So I have to, you know, then it makes, you know, I have to do my own little gratitude list. Um, and to me, the attitude of gratitude is, uh, around a couple of things. One is, and it's not just making the list. But um, it's even when things happen during the day, and I'm telling you, like when I go to the bathroom and I made it there in time and I feel so relief, I go, oh, thank you, dear God. Like, like, you know, does that just, it's just, wow, doesn't that just feel good? Um, so there are just different times. It's, it's like uh, if I formalize it, uh, then there's a chance it won't fit in my day and I, and, you know, I'll play the mom card here it's, and, and full-time worker card here. Um, but, you know, the, the truth of the matter is um, if, as soon as I have, uh, you know, a, a lousy uh, attitude, um, it also helps to make, it helps to make a, a phone call. And, you know, I do find somebody who has some sort of either they're in a place of gratitude and they want to share it with me or they're in a place that is not as good as the place I'm in, and I have a lot to be grateful for, but, they're for, but for the grace of God, go I. Um, we have just a, a little bit um, left, but I think this is a good question. How do you avoid getting cocky? Someone want to try that? 
Well, you don't have long, so don't yeah, worry. Okay, good. Good, I don't have long. Um, I don't have any experience about this, so... Um, I get, you know what, it, it, uh, the only thing I can think of is, is it comes really down to humility um, and realizing that, um, you know, uh, I'm not my higher power. Um, and, uh, you know, I uh, really quickly, um, I guess cockiness would be um, I sponsored myself for 14 years. Uh, no, I'm serious, and, and I would never recommend that. But um, I got rid of my sponsor after I was done with my fourth and fifth and got on the board, and that was what I wanted to do because I wanted to save away because you're all crazy. So, um, and then as soon as he outlived his usefulness, I got rid of him and I sponsored myself for 14 years. I would never, ever, um, you know, that was cockiness. Um, so that was really, that's the honesty. And then, you know, as my higher power would have it, that same sponsor who I got rid of found me 14 years later on the steps of a meeting and said, I'm going to sponsor you again. So, you know, and that was the humility to say yes. So. Um, please help me thank the speakers for sharing their experience, thank and hope. You have to choose a prayer. Um, please join me in a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer. Yay, I want to <laughs> we'll just do it here. God, grant me the serenity to accept things I cannot change, the to find the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. If anybody's got my pictures, I would like them back because I don't want to do that again.